I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season 6, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. Do the results of the American election feel like the end of the world or like the beginning of a brand new day? Have you spent the past two weeks or... Two months or maybe two years agonizing over first the polls, then the votes, and now the results? Has it been hard this week to focus on anything else? Does the morning after feel like the worst hangover you've ever had? For better or for worse, I don't want to minimize the serious impact that American politics has on everyone living in the world. But I do want to take a moment in the middle of all this to ask, what if everyone wasn't living in the world at all? What if none of this was real? What if we are a runaway computer program? Nothing more than some cosmic teenager's SimCity left to fend for itself. Now, all of a sudden, the election and its fallout feels a little less critical, maybe. According to the latest research, the odds are about 50-50 that we actually exist the way we think we do. So whatever your thoughts on the election, you can take comfort in that, at least. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Soon, we will have coverage for you on the context and history of the American election. Today, though, while everything gets sorted out, we have Anil Ananthaswamy, a freelance journalist and author of Through Two Doors at Once. He writes for Scientific American. He is as real as the rest of us are. Hello, Anil. Hi, Jordan. Before uh, we get deep into whether or not uh, we're real and this conversation is really happening, um, can, you, can you explain what the simulation argument actually says? Yeah, so... To start off with, I think we need to distinguish between the simulation argument and the simulation hypothesis. So the simulation hypothesis is the idea that we uh, are living inside a simulation, that we are all virtual beings in somebody's computer simulation. So that's just the hypothesis. And uh, the simulation argument is basically... Uh, an argument that came out of uh, the University of Oxford. Basically, it was a a philosopher named Nick Bostrom in 2003 who came up with the argument, which basically says that at least one of three propositions is true. And the first proposition is that almost all civilizations like ours will go extinct before they reach a stage where they can create computer simulations with conscious beings inside them. The second proposition is, even if our civilization and other civilizations were to make it to the stage where they are technologically capable of creating these simulations, uh, for whatever reason, they might decide that they will never create such simulations. And the third proposition is that we're almost certainly living in a simulation. 
So there are these three propositions or, uh, you know, the trilemma as it's called. And Nick Bostrom's simulation argument says, with a lot of mathematics behind it, that at least one of these three propositions is true. So this doesn't say that the simulation hypothesis is true. It's basically saying that one of these three propositions is true. Maybe um, before we get a little deeper into it, can you give me a sense of how seriously I should take this? Because, I mean, part of me is fascinated by it, um, and part of me feels like The Matrix came out in 1999, and this guy watched it in 2003 and got to thinking, and here we are. Yeah, and I, I think we need to set aside the simulation argument. The simulation hypothesis itself has a long history, if not directly in the context of us being inside a computer simulation. It really has roots in philosophy that go back millennia. You, you can go back all the way to ancient Greece when the philosophers at that time were arguing about what is real. And, uh, you know, so you had Democritus who had this idea that everything is made up of matter and matter at its very indivisible uh, is made up of atoms. So atoms are the smallest constituents of matter and everything else comes from, from that. So that gave rise to what today we would call materialism. Uh, and materialism essentially says that matter is real and our minds are the outcome of the interactions of the material world. And then there was Plato, I mean, you know, a really famous philosopher who, be, who was arguing for something very different. And his contention was that our experiential world is fundamentally unreal. So what's real in, in Plato's way of thinking uh, is these, what he called higher forms or abstract forms or the essence of things that exist in some higher dimensional uh, we don't even know what to call it, some higher dimensional space. But essentially, what we perceive are kind of lower dimensional projections of some higher dimensional essential abstract forms. So already you could see that there was a division in what was considered real. And and this this continues. I mean, even in modern philosophy of mind, uh, you know, the this, this question of what is real is, and you know, uh, how do we know anything exists is a very fundamental question. For example, there's this whole idea of uh, a thought experiment of a brain in a vat. Now think about our own brains for a moment, right? Our brains are essentially, you know, this three pound mass of tissue stuck inside a skull. Uh, and it's connected to the outside world through nerves. So you have, uh, you know, inputs coming in from the outside world through our senses, and then the, and there are nerves carrying signals out to the outside world. And all of this is happening uh, even as the brain is literally stuck inside this skull. Now, the question that the brain in a VAT uh, argument sort of poses is that if you had a brain literally in a bath of sort of nutrients, and, it, and all of its inputs and outputs were connected to a supercomputer that was able to simulate all the necessary inputs and outputs. Could the brain ever know that it's inside a simulation? I mean, this is something, you know, when you, when you think about what our brains are doing, uh, it's not such a far-fetched sort of theoretical argument to pose and try to answer because in order, you know, when you start asking questions like this, Philosophers run into all sorts of questions about, uh, you know, what is real. Uh, these questions arise in modern physics. So, you know, theoretical physics, we know now that, 
you know, atoms are can be divided further into subatomic particles. Subatomic particles can be thought of as energy. And then we go further down, you know, there's space-time. Eventually, in at least in some ways of thinking about what's underlying everything, things break down into just pure information and computation. Uh, and so even in theoretical physics, people are asking this question, what is real? And it's not a question that has been answered. So when you look at the whole history of this in this context, suddenly the idea that we might be simulations in a computer is not that far-fetched. The reason why it has become such a big deal in the last two decades is, as you pointed out, because of the Matrix movies, but also because it's very, very clear to people who are building computer games and virtual reality games, etc., that these, these virtual environments are getting you know, extremely sophisticated and extremely high fidelity. And so, you know, there are many people who argue that it's, you know, the, the, the time is not far away when we will be able to simulate, uh, you know, entire universes with beings inside them that are experiencing these virtual worlds. Um, and then, you know, it doesn't take much to make the leap from there to say, oh, we might be, right. you know, uh, inside such a computer. And I mean, as somebody um, who's played more than his fair share of those open world video games uh, over the past number of years, they do get incredibly sophisticated. But there are always ways um, in which, and, and I'm, I'm leading to sort of ask how we can test this theory. There, there are always ways in which players try to break the game, right? Like jumping over the invisible barrier at the end of the, the side or seeing if you can swim forever and if anything comes up at the end. And usually uh, because the they lack the simple computing power. The games do have boundaries and and things that rein you in. Yep. Um, and and from what I gather from the piece you wrote and and some other research is that there are ways people are trying to test that in our reality. Yeah, I mean, so there are there are a couple of ways of thinking about that. There are you know people who will argue that if we are in a simulation, there is just absolutely no way that you'll be able to tell, for the very simple reason f that. Let's say the simulation made a mistake, right? And, and you know, somehow the beings inside the simulation started seeing a glitch in the matrix. Well, all, all that the super intelligence that is ostensibly simulating us has to do is just reset, take us back to a previous state and wipe out any right. kind of awareness of the glitch and you're back to zero. So there are arguments to be made that we can never, ever tell. But... What's interesting is that there are people who are taking this question uh, more seriously. For instance, there are physicists now who are beginning to, you know, who, are, uh, who have developed the capability of simulating from the ground up uh, a helium atom or a helium nucleus. So a helium nucleus has two neutrons and two protons, and that might seem terribly simple, but actually the kind of forces that are acting on the particles in a in a helium nucleus are so uh, strong that it has been, until recently, really impossible to try and simulate uh, a, a helium atom. But that has started happening. In order for them to do that, though, they have to assume that there is a structure to space-time that is not infinitely divisible, that, that there is some sort of coarse granularity, because without that coarse mm -hmm. granularity, they cannot do the simulations. They don't have the computing power. So they have to basically make simplifying assumptions about the structure of space-time in order to do their simulation. Now, the argument then goes that, 
Well, if we are also kind of doing, uh, you know, if we are simulations inside a computer, then the people, or not people, but whoever, whatever did the simulation uh, would also have to make such simplifying assumptions in order to essentially do it efficiently. And if that's the case, then there might be signatures of that, those assumptions in our observations of the cosmos. And uh, for, for instance, uh, the, uh, the way cosmic, high-energy cosmic rays come at us from uh, different parts of the universe, there might be some sort of preponderance of cosmic rays from one direction relative to another, things like that. So there are ways in which we can figure out uh, the signatures that might arise uh, in astronomical observations where space-time to have this kind of discrete granularity. It's all speculation at this point. I mean, mm -hmm. th there are there's mathematics, of course, but you know we have not seen any such signature. In in quantum mechanics, there is something called a collapse of the state of the quantum system that happens when we make a measurement or when we make an observation. So if we if we choose to look at a particle, now the particle can be said to be in a superposition of being in many states uh, at the same time. So it can be in it can be in a superposition of quantum states where these quantum states suggest that the particle is in different positions at the same time. But when we make a, an observation, the particle turns out to be in one place, not in all these different places. And, and what uh, standard quantum mechanics says is that the act of observe, observation, observing the particle, actually collapses the superposition uh, that the particle was in to... Uh, a state in which the particle is in only one location. Now, we really don't know what this process of collapse is, whether it's something real, whether it's something just made up in the sense of it being a mathematical abstraction that allows us to make, you know, calculations. Now, the, you know, there are people thinking about this in the context of a simulation. If, it, if we are in a simulation, there is obviously no real collapse happening, that the collapse is literally just uh, you know, the outcome of a calculation that is happening inside the simulation. So are there ways in which we can then design experiments to somehow um, catch this duplicity in in the underlying reality? Uh, of course, again, we don't know. I mean, these, these are the ways in which people are thinking about this problem. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. As we think about ways to test this uh, one way or another. As I understand it, um, some of the new research going on is rather than uh, trying explicitly to prove it or disprove it, um, it's to calculate the likelihood uh, that we could be living in a simulation. Can you kind of walk me through uh, what that process is and, and how likely is it according to the latest numbers? So, you know, in, in the recent past, people like Elon Musk have made the claim that the odds are, you know, uh, one in billions that we are living in 
base reality. So base reality being the you know reality which is not simulated, that is real. Basically, um, someone like Musk gives it very, very low odds that we are actually living in base reality, meaning that the odds are extremely high that we are living in a simulation. The current work, and a lot of it is due to astronomer David Kipping of Columbia University, he took Nick Bostrom's uh, trilemma, the one that we talked about earlier, where at least one of three propositions is true. He basically collapses the first two of those propositions. The first proposition being almost all civilizations go extinct before reaching a stage where they can create such simulations. The second proposition being, even if we were to reach a technologically savvy uh, state where we can create the simulations for whatever reasons, such civilizations decide that they don't want to create simulations. He collapses those two into one, and he calls it the physical hypothesis. The idea that, and because the end result of both of those propositions is that we are not in a simulation, we are living in base reality. So he collapses those two into one uh, hypothesis, which he calls the physical hypothesis. And then the other one is the simulation hypothesis. Now, given the lack of any evidence uh, that we are in one or the other, uh, probability theory basically starts by assigning equal probabilities to both, 50-50. You have to do that. It's called the principle of indifference. And then you start trying to do further analysis to see, can you distinguish between these two states? And that's where Kipping does some more work, uh, which has to do with this idea that uh, even if we are living in simulations, there will be certain simulations that will have the capacity to create further simulations. So they will be they will have offspring simulations. But then as you co go deeper and deeper into this rabbit hole, you will eventually reach sort of a state where simulations will just not have enough computing resources to create further you know, simulations. So we'll end up with simulations that are basically at the leaf of this or, or at the very tip of this kind of tree of simulation. And it turns out that if you do the numbers, most of the simulations, if the simulation hypothesis is correct, then most of the simulations will be these kind of, uh, you know, simulations with without the ability to create further simulations. And when you when you put in all the numbers, etc., it turns out that the odds are still 50-50 that we are living in base reality or we are living in a simulation. But because of these additional calculations, the probability shifts in favor just a tiny bit just a tiny bit, it shifts in favor of us living in base reality, not in a simulation. So for now, the numbers are suggesting that we are more likely to be living in base reality than in physical, than in a simulation. But the moment, the moment that our civilization is capable of creating a simulation with conscious beings inside, right. the calculations shift, that then the odds completely shift in favor of us also being inside a simulation. These things are fascinating to think about and, and to follow down, you know, the rabbit hole, as you put it. But I guess what I also uh, want to ask you is, as much as I love thinking about this stuff and talking about it, what difference would it make to our lives if we were a simulation? So, I mean, very obviously right now, it makes no difference, honestly. I mean, whether we are in a simulation or not, because you know, our lives feel real to us and we have to deal with the consequences of how they feel. So I think the interest in this is purely from, at this point, from 
a philosophy perspective and just the intrigue of it all, right? But it has connections to understanding how our brains work. So, for instance, you know, the modern way of understanding how our brains perceive uh, the world outside has something that is not far away from the whole idea that we are constantly hallucinating. So the traditional understanding of perception, you know, like if you're looking out at the world through your eyes, the traditional understanding of perception was that the brain collects all the information that's coming in through the eyes and somehow builds up a scene for you as to what is out there in terms of it detects the edges, it detects the contours, it detects objects, it you know, creates the whole scene and then presents you with the scene as if on a, on a screen, right? And turns out that that doesn't quite work. Like computer vision, uh, you know, people working in computer vision, those people who have been trying to endow computers with the ability to see, have struggled to do this bottom-up approach. It, does, it just doesn't work. And the modern way of understanding, uh, one of the most popular ways of understanding how perception might be happening is that our brains actually have internal models of the world outside, whether these models are hardwired into the brain uh, or things that are learned through development when a child is growing up or that things that we are learning all the time uh, when we are adults. But there are models of the outside world and of our bodies embedded in that outside world already in the brain. And so anytime there is sensory input coming into, into the brain, let's say light falling on our eyes, then the brain basically makes a prediction based on its internal models about what might be causing the sensory input that's falling on the eyes. And at every moment, what you perceive is the, bain, is the brain's best guess about what is the cause of the sensory inputs that's falling on our eyes. So at every instant, you're actually hallucinating, in a manner of speaking, the causes that the brain thinks is producing the sensory inputs. Right? And then it's the brain's job to make sure that what it's predicting is in line with what's actually out there, et cetera, et cetera. So by and large, we, what we are hallucinating is in tune with physical reality outside. But there are times when, when it's not. So when you have, you know, when uh, people uh, unfortunately have a psychotic break, psychosis is, psychosis is essentially a condition where we start hallucinating about things that are not there. But the mechanisms that cause psychosis and the mechanisms that cause perception might be one and the same thing, except that in one, when you're having a psychotic break, when, you're under, when you are you know, experiencing psychosis, something gets disconnected between the brain's internal mechanisms for generating perceptions and its ability to make sure that those generated perceptions are in tune with physical reality. So already there's evidence that maybe what the brain is doing is simulating the outside world. Right, it sounds like a computer bug to me. Well, but this is how, this is how perception might be working. And this is certainly right. how computer vision is beginning to work, right? So the question as to, is the simulation argument, the simulation hypothesis, is that useful uh, in any way to our lives? Well, not in, in the grand scheme of things, of course not, but it's certainly a way of thinking about what's happening. You know, when you start asking, what is real? What is perception? 
you can start under you know if we start understanding brain mechanisms that generate perception and we start understanding how this leads to psychosis when things go wrong maybe there are ways in which we can then start helping those of us who are actually suffering from you know perceptual mechanisms gone wrong and that can because the consequences of those are quite horrendous is the uh, process of doing this research and testing these theories and uh, trying to figure it all out. Could this process be what eventually leads us to be able to create a simulation, thereby proving uh, that we probably are in a simulation? The process of doing this will certainly lead us to a better understanding of what we are. Whether we are in a simulation or not is an, another level of question, but certainly, you know, there is a line of thought in machine learning and deep learning and artificial intelligence where people are beginning to see that by being able to create artificial intelligence that ostensibly one day could be conscious, we would understand what consciousness is in the context of humans uh, and in the context of our brains, because that's a huge question we haven't even touched upon as to the nature of consciousness. A lot of this simulation hypothesis kind of assumes that consciousness can arise inside a computation. And that's not a given, you know, and if that's not a given, then this whole thing will fall apart. So yeah, uh, you know, trying to understand whether an artificially created uh, intelligence can be conscious uh, and what that even means, we don't know yet. But if we reach that stage, it would certainly tell, uh, tell us a lot about what we are, who we are, how we come about, yes. Thank you so much for uh, trying to explain this to me. I'm sorry I asked you uh, some very simple questions, but I love trying to understand. Before I let you go, um, I just got to ask you for your own opinion after after doing this reporting. Um, what do you think? So I've been thinking about this topic from a very different perspective, uh, not so much about computer simulations, but just you know, this question of who am I? So my my second book, uh, which was called The Man Who Wasn't There, um, is an exploration of this question, who am I, from the perspective of neuroscience. And, uh, you know, it's about the human sense of self and whether the self is real. Uh, does, does it exist, you know, in any kind of uh, fashion that is as real as the atoms that make up our bodies? Um, and in that exploration, I, I certainly came to the conclusion that no, we are, you know, the, the, the individuals that we perceive ourselves to be are just constructed things. They are not real. So they are essentially simulations of our brain's internal models. Uh, so, you know, it, it, to me, you know, once that is shown to be the case, it really doesn't matter whether... Uh, where all this is happening inside the simulation or all this is happening because a bunch of atoms and molecules are, you know, interacting and creating the illusion. The, the actual point is the reality that we feel about our own individual existences, uh, individual existence, that itself, there's a very strong argument to be made that that is an illusion. And uh, so I lean towards the idea that Certainly, we as individuals, at least the feeling that we have of being individuals with sharply defined psychological boundaries, the feeling that we have of having free will, etc., 
that is an illusion. Once you make that claim, it to me, it really doesn't matter where that illusion arises from. Because understanding that it's an illusion has consequences for how we live our lives, how we how much we take seriously what we are as psychological beings, etc. Anil, thank you so much for this. I'm going to go uh, walk outside and lie down in the grass and look at the clouds uh, for a little while now. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's not a bad idea, yes. Anil Ananthaswamy from Scientific American, author of Through Two Doors at Once. That was The Big Story. If you'd like more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can write to us. We check our email every day. The Big Story Podcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And of course, subscribe to this podcast, review this podcast, rate this podcast, tell your friends about this podcast. Most importantly, just listen to this podcast. And thank you for that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season 6, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency.